Today's read of Water and the Spirit, Ritual, Magic, and Initiation in the Life of an African Shaman, written by Mali Doma Somme, Chapter 5, In the White Men's World. The presbytery where Father Malloy took me was one of the few modern buildings in the whole county. Small but stout, it seemed built to challenge the environment, especially the periodic hurricanes that destroyed many other structures. The walls stood high and straight, their red bricks smartly arranged and held together by concrete. The interior was attractive, Unlike our compound, whose floor was made with cow dung and was soft to the foot, the house of the priest was hard, inside and out. Father Malloy's room was like nothing I had ever seen before. Instead of a mud elevation for a bed and a burlap sack for a pillow, he had a four-legged platform, about two feet tall, four feet wide and nearly six feet long, so soft-looking it seemed as if its very purpose was to generate sleep. All of it was white, so white it was intimidating to look at. Surrounding the bed on all sides was a misty, transparent veil. I was to learn very soon that it was a protective device against mosquitoes. I began to think that my rough journey to the hill was not so bad since I was learning so many new things. It would even be great fun to tell mother about them when Father Malloy took me home. Poor mother. If I had only known that I was not going to see her again for a long, long time, I would have taken the opportunity right then to run away. My introduction to a western house and a western bed was the beginning of an end. Grandfather's prophecy had begun, and with it my childhood was coming to an end. Never again would I hear the melancholy songs of mother at work, the fairy tales of father at dusk, and the songs and dances of the Beerfor compound. The Mission Hill was only five or six miles away from my parents' house, yet it was forbidden to go home. Father Malloy's orders were enforced by the catechists and the workers who lived on the Mission Hill. No contact was supposed to take place between us and anybody who was not part of Father Malloy's crew. There were about ten other boys at the mission, most of whom had preceded me to Father Malloy's establishment and most of whom had been kidnapped as I had. Slatin was from my village. He was taller and stronger than me, and he became my good friend. Father Malloy had driven him up the hill a week earlier. Daniel was also from our village, but he was so quiet, no one could get anything out of him. The rest of the boys came from six different villages. Urube and Kritov came from a village called Maber. They arrived one night after dinner, looking like they had been awakened in their sleep. Gautien and Papa said they were from the faraway village of Pontier. Marcelin was born in Dasara, a village east of Dano. Betin came from Sori, a village whose people are renowned for their hunting prowess. Martin was from Guibal, 
He said his father left him at the Mission Hill and never came back. The last boy I met was Clotter from Bolem, who arrived a few days after me. As the days passed, I began to be afraid. I longed to go home. I longed to speak to my mother. I longed to be away, far away from the home of this man. Manti told us about some other kids, adolescents who had been at the mission school for a long time but now were gone. They had been sent, not back to their respective villages, but to a so-called seminary far away somewhere in the jungle. My life at the mission was much different from the relaxed, free-willing life I had enjoyed as a child in our compound. Here, every moment of the day was planned, with little time off for fun. Our day began at around seven, when we were taken by the catechist to a well, where we washed our faces in a bucket of water. Then, he took us to the church where Father Malloy recited the Mass. It was all most of us could do to stay awake during the 30 or 40 minutes this Mass took. Then we finally got to eat our breakfast. The food was served in a large container which we ate from with our fingers in enforced silence. The next two or three hours were spent in class. Then we had to go work on the mission farm pulling out weeds until lunchtime. After lunch, we had singing, followed by two hours of religious instruction, followed by a one-hour French class. Late in the afternoon, we were brought to the sacristy of the church for a little prayer. Dinner was taken the same way as lunch and breakfast. Our nightly entertainment consisted of more songs and review of the things we had been taught during the day. By 8 p.m., we were in bed. The only variations in our schedule were the occasional replacement of farming and gardening with physical education, which consisted of running around. I liked none of this. Reader's note, that child, that child, that toddler, he was four years old four unbelievable and so clearly slavery enslavement of African people didn't just happen in the diaspora African people were enslaved by African children I'm just going to stick with this book because I don't know everybody's story but this book he was enslaved by European missionaries enslaved at four years old five or six miles from his own home Uh, this is a lot wow the first time I got the chance to ask Father Malloy why he had taken me away from my family. He locked me in a room with concrete walls and a metal door and walked away, speaking in a foreign language. His mood had become arrogant and 
intimidating, but I did not care. I wanted to go home. I banged on the door so hard and so long that in the end, someone opened it. It was a catechist, and behind him was Father Malloy. The catechist had a whip in his hand. He spoke fluent Dagara, and when he ordered me to bend over, he called me Patrice. This was the first time someone had directly referred to me by my Catholic name. I had heard that name spoken each time Father Malloy came to the compound to see my father, but I did not know they had been talking about me. Since that was not my name, I refused to respond to it or to bend over. The catechist began to lash out at me. I could see Father Malloy smiling broadly and I screamed insults at him, but they were diluted by pain. This was the first time anyone had ever hit me so hard. The pain of the first blow was so bad that I didn't even notice the many other times the whip struck my body. Very soon I doubled over, then lay flat on the floor. My nerves were so tightly strung I could not produce a sound. I realized I was suffocating and I felt as if I were going to die. All I could hear was the rhythmic sound of the whip landing on my back and then I felt an irresistible desire to sleep. In my dream, I saw an old familiar man whose name I could not remember. When he poured water on me, it soothed me. When I woke up, it was pitch dark. I knew the man I had dreamed about was grandfather. I tried to move, but my body was on fire and I was very thirsty. Beginning to cry again, I kept calling for my mother to bring me some water. Although my misery and the reason for my beating were incomprehensible to me, what was happening was all too real. The door opened and the catechist came in and ordered me to shut up. To this day, I remember him telling me that he was my mother now and that I should never call for her again. In my confusion, the gentleness in his voice even sounded like my mother. It would be years before I understood that tenderness is the weapon used by the torturer to win over his victim. For me, the world ended that night. When I woke up in the morning, I was lying in the dispensary on my belly covered with bandages. I didn't dare turn over. The simple thought of doing so brought me tremendous pain. A stranger held some water to my lips and I drank profusely. As my mind returned to me, I wanted to talk, but I was too weak to say anything. How many days I was kept there and treated for the wounds I sustained, I never knew. But it taught me my first lesson, to stop being innocent. few kids like me in this ill-fated place. 
so I felt I was not alone. When I met Father Malloy after my recovery, I was trembling with fear. He, however, had not changed. He smiled as usual and even handed me a piece of sugar. But I saw him as such a monster that I felt I was better off just doing what he told me to do rather than asking him any more questions about my fate. My barely healed wounds were powerful evidence that this man would have things his way no matter what, nor was I the only boy who had been beaten. There was not one of us who did not bear the scars of Father Malloy's rage. My life had become so absurd anyway that I felt as if I were in a bad dream that I would wake up from some day if only I could stay with it. Whether some unknown force had put the thought of hope into my mind, I never knew. Meanwhile, I became submissive, though that meant losing all my enthusiasm and spontaneity. In my dream world, an impossible drama was unfolding. Reflecting on this even 20 years later with Mantier, who had long ago retired, I realized that my instincts had been correct. On the Mission Hill, time stopped being my friend and became instead an overwhelming force. I could no longer tell how fast or how slow it moved. Something in me had stopped working. A year could have gone by and I would not have known unless someone had told me. Our days were lived in fear. Fear of being beaten for the things we did or the things we neglected to do. None of us knew what was really going on or what was expected of us. We were sheep, going whichever direction the shepherd ordered us to go. Over and over we asked ourselves the same questions. Why were we here? Why couldn't we go home? Why were we being taught French and ordered to go to Mass every morning except on Sundays when we were hidden from the Christianized villagers who came to worship? Our own Sunday service began very early in the presbytery it was a quick mass, and we did not participate in the communion. One of the classes that has stayed most clearly in my mind was the French class taught by a teacher named Mantier, the local name for Matthew. Every morning, Mantier would flog us to inject a few letters of the alphabet into our recalcitrant brains. Ruthless, he held us under his tyrannic supervision from breakfast till noontime using every trick he knew to make us learn his task was not only to turn us into men of letters but also to familiarize us with french civilization on the mission hill my dagara language eroded gradually as french painfully took its place i still remember my first class Montier came to class with a textbook that he held like a sacred artifact. He also brought a huge stick and a broken engine belt. He started out by drawing some strange signs on a large, dark surface on the wall. I counted 26 of them. Then he began sullenly. 
to know the ways of the white man, you must be an artist. Just as our carvers do with wood, you must be able to carve speech, just as I did, for this is speech made flesh. These signs won't talk until I make them talk. Today, I will disclose to you the secret of the first six carvings. Tomorrow, I will tell you more. By the end of the week, you will have to know all of them. Then, I will show you what they do when they get mixed up together. Now, let us begin. I obtained the first sign by moving my hand upward with this white thing called chalk, then downward. Finally, I linked the two pieces of wood together. While speaking, Montier was writing the letter A slowly in its majestic capital form. See, it looks like the roof of a hut. You call this A. Repeat. And we all went A. The next one is like a village child with a swollen belly. You carve a piece of wood straight up and give it a belly. Then you call it B. Repeat. And we went B. Montier seemed satisfied. He looked like the head dancer who led the village dances, except that only his hands were dancing. He went on. Good. The third sign is even simpler. It's like a ring with half of it missing, but the missing part must be to the right. The white man calls it C. Say it together. We all said C. You remember what we called the kid with a big belly? Montier was already reviewing. He pointed to the letter B. What did we say it is? Montier pointed to me. I had forgotten what B was called. Being fingered all of a sudden like that did not help either. Petrified, my mind went blank. Montier waited, but fear had blocked my memory. Then he put down his book and picked up a stick. Maybe this will remind you. As the stick landed on my head, my skull exploded with pain. I remember something about a belly. I said, it's a belly. Like your big fat belly, retorted Montier. The stick landed on my head once more as he spoke. Tears streamed out of my eyes. I could not stop them. Montier pretended not to notice and turned to another student. Slatin, what did we say this thing was? Slatin stood up folded his arms and screamed, B! Good brain, good brain. Did you hear this, Patrice? What did Slatin say? I said between two sobs, Slatin said, B! Good. I'm sure your stupid brain has caught up with us now. Sit down. Now, continued Montier, if you look carefully, the belly of B is looking toward the right side. When the same belly starts looking toward the left side, the white man calls it D. Your turn. We sing D in unison. One more time. And we repeated the same thing. Clotaire asked, What do all these carvings mean? Montier seemed to have been taken by surprise. He looked up at the ceiling then said, This is not the time to learn meaning yet. When you know how to remember all of them, I will tell you what they do. Another student stood up and said, I know what they mean. Oh, really, Marceline? You should be here teaching then, but please, tell us what they mean. I don't know about A, but it seems that B, C, 
C and D are the kara. B means cooked, C means to skin, and D means to eat. It all suddenly became clear in our minds that this is what these letters should mean. It was obvious. It was as if their very visibility had hidden their meaning. Now that Marceline had thought of them in Dagara, they all made sense. They were alive. But the teacher did not like this translation. He grabbed his stick and called Marceline to the platform next to the blackboard. I will teach you that this is not a Dagara class, but a French class. Bend over with your butt toward your fellows. Marceline was shaking while he did so. The teacher pounded on his behind and said, You may go sit on it, though I know it burns. It seemed as if Marceline was making a monumental effort not to scream. His his face tight with pain, he zigzagged back to his bench and sat. The teacher went on with the identification of the alphabet without paying any further notice to what had just happened. My first day of foreign language class filled me with terror and curiosity. It happened two or three weeks after I arrived at the school. None of us knew exactly what Montier was up to, but his stern face warned us of the seriousness of the work ahead, and then there was the stick and the strap. These learning aids forced an atmosphere of fervor and inevitability into us. The first session was so emotionally intense that we were not even able to comment on what we had learned. The ghosts of A's, B's, and C's kept flowing in our child minds. We did not want to forget, especially those of us who had experienced the teacher's stick. We could all identify the alphabet easily. Memory works well when threatened with punishment and the teacher's stick was its trigger. In a few weeks, we were able to write all the letters of the alphabet. We were not in any hurry to know their meaning or to even attempt to speculate about it, but somehow knowing how to carve words or the components of words was captivating. I was able to think for the moment that young as I was, I knew something secret. Although holding the pencil was not easy, the capacity to carve visible speech was like an initiation into a secret practice. I cherished my performance because somehow I had the impression that these mysterious letters possessed the ability to say miraculous things if I combined them properly. I was like my grandfather who knew how to communicate with the dead by using the hieroglyphics of gourds and water. For me, the silent reproduction of letters was enough. There was no need to assign meaning to them because then they would lose their power. Wasn't this the reason Father Malloy spoke the Mass in Latin? Pride and passion were associated with this manner of discovery of a language. Mantier, however, was still the terror of the class. He looked like an envoy with terrible news, 
both wanted and dreaded, and he could not tolerate mistakes. The atmosphere of terror created around every session was for him a sure way to avoid failure as an instructor. On the one hand, he enjoyed our progress, but on the other hand, he seemed to be disappointed in the results we were producing. It seemed to me that he would rather see us forget to provide him with a golden opportunity to utilize his stick on us. Beating and learning went together in his mind, and Father Malloy had officially granted him this dreadful right. In less than half a year, we had reached the point where we could manage basic reading. It appeared that as we moved more and more into French, the language was getting all the more complicated. Montier liked it this complicated. During each session, he could whip us at will. Sometimes, when nobody could figure out a grammatical riddle, he would put us together by pairs and order us to slap each other's faces while he watched. One day, Slatin and I were assigned together. He and I had become quite close, and it was hard to hit a friend. When Montier noticed that we were not slapping each other hard enough, he came over to help. He held Slatin's head with his left hand and smacked him with the other. Disoriented by the shock, Slatin stumbled around in a circle. When my turn came, I also laid my head against the palm of Montier's hand. Then I closed my eyes and waited. All I remember was a loud noise like an explosion and then silence. When I awoke, I was in the dormitory with Montier. He glared at me with his red eyes, said something I couldn't understand, and walked out of the room. I went back to sleep. The first year on the Mission Hill was thus dominated by an apprenticeship to the language of Father Malloy. He was jubilant the first time I was able to say, Bonjour, mon pied, to him, and ordered everyone else in the class to greet him in French thereafter. I didn't consider Father Malloy my father, and had said this only because the teacher had told us to greet him that way. Actually, it was a total mystery to me why the priest was called Father, quote-unquote Father. He had no wife, nor did he seem to worry about having one. I decided that perhaps he needed us around so that some children would call him Father. Religious colonialism tortures the soul. Religious colonialism tortures the soul. It creates an atmosphere of fear, uncertainty, and general suspicion. The worst thing is that it uses the local people to enforce itself. Our teachers were black, from the tribe, yet they were our worst enemies. The question I often ask myself in later years when I thought about how black nationals are leading our country 
is whether a person schooled in an atmosphere of such abuse can actually lead with compassion, justice, and wisdom. My experience was not uncommon. Today, Africa's leaders are mostly people who were educated in this manner. Is it surprising that there is so much instability in so many African countries? The one exception to the harsh rule on the Mission Hill was Zan, our religious instructor. His afternoon lessons were in striking contrast to Mantier's morning terrorism. Zan's task was to prepare us for our communion. Though he could not read, he taught us out of his prodigious memory. We learned morning prayers in Dagara and evening prayers in Latin. Though Zan did not know what the prayers in Latin meant, it did not seem to matter much, for he would always make up a story to explain them. Zan laughed when relating stories from the Bible. He used to tell us that when Mary became pregnant with Jesus, his father Joseph was surprised. Somebody had figured out a way to get Mary pregnant without his knowing. When Mary's belly started to protrude, the same person told her to tell her husband that God had done it in the only way he knew how, by an immaculate conception. Zan found everything funny. I wondered why he even stayed in the mission if everything was a joke to him. I never figured it out. But I was convinced that Zan was there with us for a very good reason. This man was our last contact with our roots. He did not know how to be serious in the face of anything. He saw the whole world as a story, a funny story, and he thought that what you couldn't understand was not meant to be understood. Although Zan had translations for the prayers in Latin, he did not believe in them, so he would make some up. In this manner, he might have believed that he was preserving the arcane mystery and power of Latin. After all, when he was a boy, his Dagara elders had not provided translations when they conducted their rituals in primal language. There was one prayer he spent a long time teaching us. The prayer ran like this. In male tomes domine commento spiritu meo. Zan translated it as, I want to follow domine once again to see if he will give me something to drink. Zan thought he could adapt this phrase to Dagara since the words sounded strangely like that language. He did not think that Father Manloe knew the meaning of the words anyway. But Zan often wondered who Domine might be. He told us it was probably one of Father Malloy's close friends. He himself knew somebody in his own village by that name, but he was sure that person could not possibly be a close friend of Father Malloy, so Zan concluded that Domine must be living somewhere across the sea. Zan's teachings were a process of discovery both for him and his students. Catechism was a series of questions and answers. Zan would ask the question, then provide the answer along with a funny comment before asking us to repeat after him. One of the catechism questions was, Who created man? The answer Zan gave was, God created man along with everything else. But Zan always added that God created drinks too. Not for Father Malloy only, but for everybody, 
and that meant for him too. Zan was always complaining that Father Malloy drank all the holy wine on the grounds, so there was not enough for everybody. Although I enjoyed Zan's teaching much better than Montier's, I learned very little from him about the Bible till I was able to read it myself. Once I learned to read, it became a wonderful escape. Books were a world into which we were authorized to escape, though we always had to come back to reality. In the meantime, I had become accustomed to a life without my real parents, especially because I was able to speak a little French after the first year in the Mission Hill. I was now finding it difficult to remember how to speak Dagara. It took a man like Montier to make me fluent in French. His imagination for finding insidious ways to make us learn had no bounds. After Father Malloy heard us greet him in French, he declared that speaking Dagara at school was now a sin. So Montier declared Dagara illegal within the precinct of the mission. To enforce this new law, he found a goat skull and tied a rope to it so that it could be hung around the neck of a transgressor. He called it the symbol. Whoever was found guilty of uttering a word in Dagara was to wear this ugly skull around his neck until the next pupil was caught sinning. To liberate himself, the sinner had to listen for a misused word. Speaking poor French also counted as a sin, or for a Dagara's word that had slipped into a French sentence. When someone erred, the symbol wearer would declare him a sinner, and with the help of his comrades would transfer the skull. <clears throat> One night in the dormitory, we were talking about the way our lives had changed since we came to the Mission Hill. Slatin said he did not even remember his real traditional name anymore, though he wished he would be called by this name once in a while because it would help him recall his home. I found his forgetfulness outrageous, and I said, I can't imagine that I would ever forget that my Dagara name is Malidoma. The current unfortunate bearer of the symbol, Clotur, promptly declared me a sinner because I had spoken Dagara by uttering my traditional name. Everybody agreed with him because Malidoma is primarily a Dagara word before somebody's name, before being somebody's name. So, in the middle of the night, they hung the hideous object around my neck. That was the first time I experienced the horror of living with the symbol. The rope was itchy and too short, and the skull itself had a terrible odor because it was still in the final stages of decomposition. It was very hard for me to get to sleep. The skull had other applications beyond the simple fear it produced. It was a memory enhancer. The wearer of the symbol became a spy, a listener, and observer. The symbol functioned like an extension of Montier, who had invented it to make sure that we didn't limit our apprenticeship to our few daily lessons with him. So, we learned and studied hard, because we did not want to wear the symbol. Yet, it was always with us, a terrible presence. Somebody always had to wear it, and it could not switch next until one of us spoke Dagara by mistake.
So, our intellectual life was ruled by the symbol and by Montier, and we learned fast. Understanding did not matter. The symbol did not give us time for that. Years later, when I was a student in the seminary, I would think back on the symbol and realize that human ingenuity is boundless in times of threat. There is no limit to productivity in those times. He who wore the symbol was asked to be more creative than the rest. He had to play the devil's advocate and also the trickster. He had to engage all of us in conversation, waiting for one of us to slip. Life presents us with an infinite number of choices. Discipline is perhaps a way of narrowing them down. But to learn to limit one's choices, one must first have a specific goal. When I was at the mission, I never knew what my goal was supposed to be. My life had been taken away from me because during the years I was there, this institution assumed that its goal was my goal. The result was, of course, the slow death of my identity and the understanding that I was in exile from everything I had held dear. I would like to tell you more details of my years at the Mission Hill, but for the most part, it was a child's dream journey. Most of its episodes have been buried deep within my unconscious mind and cannot be remembered. As an adult, I have learned that this state of mind is not uncommon for children raised without parents by caretakers who really do not love them. The memories of these children become undependable, flat, and one-dimensional like paper. I began to wake up from the dream around the age of 12 when Father Malloy decided that we were old enough to be sent to the seminary at Nancy. I remember the night I arrived there by a truck with the dozen other graduates of the mission school. My first impression was of a harsh brightness caused by the rows of floodlights that lined the road that led to the seminary. The driver of the truck stopped at the main building, a tall, brightly illuminated brick house. A priest came out and spoke with the driver. Then we were taken into the guest quarters, an immense dormitory lined with metal beds that seemed to go on indefinitely. Some were occupied by sleeping bodies, others were empty. The priest assigned beds and ordered us to go to sleep immediately. My bed faced the entrance door. There was a straw mat open on it and a blanket. I had never seen anything like it before, nor have I since. It was made of four steel bars, about three inches in width and five feet in length. I put my bag underneath the bed and stretched out onto it. The straw mat was not firm enough to keep me from falling between the bars, and with a loud cracking noise, I found myself wedged between two of them. Overcome by exhaustion, I went to sleep without trying to dislodge myself. Hill, 
Father Malloy told us that our years there had provided us with an adequate preparation for the next step in the journey toward encountering Christ. How strange it sounded to be meeting Christ through the agency of literacy. The day the truck came to pick us up, the father was so happy and so proud of us all that he couldn't stop smiling. A crowd had gathered, some out of curiosity because they had never seen a truck, others because this was a distraction from their heavy work. My longing for my family never stopped while I lived at the Mission Hill, even though I could not remember when I had seen my parents for the last time. For some strange reason, the memory of grandfather was even more vivid than that of my parents. I could feel him around me in ways I cannot explain. This feeling was not there when I thought about my mother and my father. As I took the 120-mile journey to the seminary, every mile seemed to deepen my separation from them.